0: Hello, this is Natalia Shpilova-Said. I'm the host of New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Laszlo Borhi, author of Dealing with Dictators, the United States, Hungary, and East Central Europe 1942-1989, which was originally published in 2016, and the first paperback edition was published in 2018 by Indiana University Press. Laszlo Borhi is Peter Kadesh Associate Chair and Professor of Central European History at Indiana University and Scientific Counselor of the Institute of History for Humanities of the Hungarian Academy. He is author of Hungary in the Cold War 1945-1956 between the United States and the Soviet Union and author and editor of Soviet Occupation of Romania, Hungary, and Austria 1944-1948. Laszlo Borhi is the recipient of the Cold Cross of Merit of the Hungarian Republic, the Zoltan Berti uh, Prize of the Ministry of National Cultural Heritage of Hungary and the Georgi Runke Prize of the Hungarian Historical Association. Hello, Laszlo, and thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, I'm very happy to discuss uh, your recent publication, and I would like to start with the introduction part. So, the introduction part opens with a sentence that actually invites a number of questions. This is a book on the impact of one country on the other. However, as the title indicates, more than two countries are involved in this conversation. The entire geographical and political unit of East-Central Europe. So, in other words, dealing with dictators is an invitation to consider and at the same time to reconsider the way we think about political players of different caliber. The United States, on the one hand, and uh, Hungary, on the other. As you proceed with the introduction, you note, and this is the quote, the United States, the most Powerful state of the times, and Hungary, a weak client state in the middle of Europe. It is the history of how the framers of American policy sought to uh, exploit this small but strategically well located state to further America's strategic interests, and how Hungarians, caught in the net of aggressors first Germany, then the Soviet Union, tried to use the United States as a counterbalancing force. And, quote. What's the driving force for this research? And would you comment on reconsiderations, political, historical and geographical, that uh, this book um, invites?
1: Uh, I was always interested in the Cold War. And since I'm from Hungary and I have particular access to Hungarian archives, although I've done research also in Moscow and a lot of research in the United States, also in France, I was interested in the place of small players in international politics, Uh, international relations theory, history of international relations is usually and understandably concerned with the history of the great powers, the great actors of international politics, Germany, France, England, Russia, United States, more recently, China, India, and the small ones are just an appendix of that research, and they are not assigned a lot of role in international politics. And my question is, is this always true or are there certain junctures in history where small states, weak states actually can play a role in the formation of uh, international politics? Now, of course, uh, um, emerging from uh, uh, communism, emerging from the Cold War, uh, there were certain issues that people, historians, intellectuals were not allowed to talk about uh, prior to the regime change in 1990. And those questions involved history after 1945. That was basically a taboo. Uh, So what historians set out to do, and this is quite funny for somebody who is uh, um, listening to this broadcast in the United States or some other place in the Western world, Historians wanted to reveal the so-called blank spots of history, but we did not know how, for instance, i give you some some examples. How and why did Hungary and East Central Europe end up in the Soviet bloc? What was the motivating force behind the Soviet Union's expansion into this geographical area? Uh, What was the American response to it? How did 1956 play out, the revolution of 1956? Why did the Soviet Union intervene? Why didn't the Americans, despite all the promises that they made, help? So, many, many questions like this. Some uh, historical issues we could not talk about, partly because of ideological taboos, and partly because the relevant archives were not open. So, there was also this kind of curiosity of reconstructing a past uh, that had not been discussed. Uh, before. Uh, Also, uh, some statements about American foreign policy. Was the United States an imperialist power, as the revisionist school of historians would argue? Um, How does the United States behave in international politics? Does it use its strength as leverage to manipulate smaller countries for its own national interest? How did the, uh, the Central European countries play out and their role play out in the bilateral relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union? So there were questions of international political theory and historical issues that I I, I really wanted to address and basically to find out ultimately the place and role of Hungary and Central Europe in international politics maybe a little bit before 1945 and after 1945. And the finding was that in certain junctures, the small states in the middle of Europe were simply policy takers. They had no impact on their own place in international politics. They were not masters of their own fate. And at certain junctures, on the other hand, like in 1988, 1989, 1990, the miraculous transformation from communism to at least pluralistic political systems, even if not perfect liberal democracies, uh, they did have a transformative role. Not only in changing their own domestic structures, but they also contributed to the co- to the fall of the Soviet Union. They contributed to the collapse of the Warsaw Pact, they, and they also contributed to German unification and unification of the European continent itself. So there are two. Uh, extremes of the book, Uh, the period between 1941, maybe 1942, and 1988, when these powers had very little, these small countries had very little latitude, they were first in the German and then the Soviet sphere of influence, and then the opposite extreme in 1989, and all of a sudden they were free to engage in international politics.
0: Mm -hmm. So dealing with dictators gradually guides readers through the changes that mark the development of the relationships Mm -hmm. between the US and Hungary and the Soviet Union as well. So, uh, for example, discussing the... uh, political climate of 1948 you state and this is a quote the year uh, 1948 saw a basic shift in american policymakers attitudes towards soviet control of european territory the idea of peaceful cooperation nurtured up to then by many british and american politicians and diplomats was shattered End of quote so you also provide a complex and multi-layered picture of changes and those processes that contributed to those changes so you touch upon propaganda and um, educational exchange programs, um, cultural sphere in general, and, of course, economy. So would you briefly comment on those events, which, in your opinion, significantly shaped the development of relations between the U.S. and Hungary um, at this specific stage, Um, I mean, 1948?
1: So 1948 is a decisive year, uh, partly because of the coup in Czechoslovakia, the communist coup in Czechoslovakia. Now, Czechoslovakia had been a state that had signed a treaty of friendship with the Soviet Union in 1943. President Benesh, who was disenchanted, disillusioned with the Western powers because of the Munich Conference in 1938 and the lack of Western assistance to Czechoslovakia, turned to the Soviet Union to provide for its security, also hoping that if he pursued a friendly policy vis-à-vis the Soviet Union, then uh, he would forestall the Bolshevization of Czechoslovakia. And the shocking issue in '48 was that in this fundamentally Western-oriented country that was friendly to the Soviet Union, the Soviets were not satisfied with having a pro-Soviet government. They wanted a communist government. So that basically sent a signal that a number one cooperation with the Soviet Union on a realistic basis would no longer be possible. And number two, the Soviet Union has reached one of its most westward positions in in Russian history. So it's now very close to Western Europe. It's sitting in East Berlin. It's sitting in Prague. And that could pose a danger to Western security. Now, up to 1948, despite all Truman's harsh, strident anti-Soviet rhetoric, the basic idea was not to challenge the Soviet Union in its own sphere of influence. Uh, in fact, Americans initially expected the Soviet Union to be a stabilizing factor in Europe. Uh, we need to cooperate to forestall the rise of German revanchism. We have to avoid a new war. And in order to do that, we can give the Soviet Union a concession in, in Eastern Europe for allow it to control the region politically and economically, but at the same time still remain cooperative with the West. Now, 1948 definitely shattered that expectation. So the idea prior to 1948 was that Soviet hegemony in Eastern Europe would actually enhance European stability. After 1948, though, this equation was reversed uh, to the notion that the re-establishment of national independence in Eastern Europe would actually enhance European stability. So because of A large part because of the coup in Czechoslovakia. Uh, America now concentrated on the rollback of the Soviet Union from Eastern Europe. Now, rollback and liberation was a propaganda slogan adopted by the Eisenhower-Dulles ticket in the 1952 presidential election in the United States. Uh, But we now know from the research of American scholars primarily, that the United States had began to pursue this very strident and harsh program of liberation already under the Truman administration. Truman was no longer about containment after 1948. It was very much about rollback. Now, the initial idea uh, was to economically... Isolate, politically and economically isolate Eastern Europe, the so called Soviet bloc, or sometimes they even said the Sino Soviet bloc, China and the Soviet Union together. And this, you know, really shows the image that the United States had about communism and and the Soviet role in world politics. Um, Now, that was not necessarily the right response because they were going straight down Stalin's alley, because this was precisely what Stalin wanted he wanted to divest the soviet union and eastern europe of com- completely of any kind of western presence western involvement so when they began to pursue the policy of embargo they actually did what stalin wanted because stalin in 1948 announced a policy of economic self-sufficiency economic autarky that we have to do without the Western world. We don't need the Western world. In fact, Western influences are nefarious. We have to get rid of them. So they established the Comecon in 1949, which was the Soviet version of the European Economic Community, an early version of that, which never really got off the ground, but the idea was a self contained block. Uh, and from there it follows that there basically remained not only any economic no economic relations with the West whatsoever, but the communist leaderships in Eastern Europe were bent on eliminating, uh liquidating any kind of Western cultural presence. In fact, uh Western the tradition of Western literature, art, music. Uh, was meant to be obliterated. And any kind of humanitarian engagement or engagement with Western intellectuals, Western scholars, was basically criminalized. You were not allowed to do that. Uh, So even if the West or the United States had wanted to engage culturally with Eastern Europe, it would not have been possible. Now, all this changed gradually after Stalin died, very slowly, very, very slowly. and Not only... In the function of the changes in the Soviet Union itself, but because this was not a homogeneous region, also as a function of how the individual communist regimes operated in Romania, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, or elsewhere. So initially, it was easier to engage Poland and Czechoslovakia culturally than it was to engage a country like Hungary, which, was, mm-hmm. which remained very close because of the a very close system, because of the revolution in 1956. So eventually, as the 60s unfolded and the United States changed its aims in Eastern Europe, it was no longer about liberation. Mm-hmm. They did not want to roll back the Soviet Union. It was no longer about regime change. It was also only about liberalization. And the construction of bridges between East and West. So if if the if the the uh, um, the, the, the target of the, the aim of the policy change is so much the strategy. So if we're not interested in regime change, if you're not interested in rollback, we have to use different methods. And these methods turned out to be somewhat more complex, uh, somewhat more nuanced. Mm-hmm than the previous approach of liberation, rollback, and isolation.
0: Mm-hmm. So continue this conversation mm-hmm. about the American uh, policymaking. Uh, dealing with dictators uh, also uh, touches upon um, the U.S. plans for Hungary and um, Eastern Europe, which were determined by the U.S. priorities at the international level. And uh, as you uh, put in your book, um, for example, this is a quote again, plans for Eastern Europe were connected to new ideas about Germany. Uh, So how did the development in this global context shape the developments inside Hungary?
1: Uh, Hungary, as the other countries in Eastern Europe, quickly discovered that, number one, the Soviet economic model, the centrally planned model, doesn't work very well, or in fact doesn't work at all. So they developed economies of shortage. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they were struggling with technological innovation. They were struggling with the lack of capital. They were struggling with the lack of know-how. They were struggling with the lack of trade. Uh, they were unable to produce commodities. Uh, that could replace Western imports. So all of them basically found that if you want to modernize our economies, if you want to elevate the standard of living, if you want to catch up with the Western world, you know, you had the Soviets, the Rousseff had this notion of, of catching up and surpassing. Uh, so did Eastern European countries they were not talking about surpassing Western Europe but just catching up let's catch up with Austria let's try to catch up with Germany and in order to do that uh, within the very tight framework of the Stalinist economic system they need to open the door to the Western world and in order to do that they understood that if you want Western money you want Western uh, trade uh, we need to give them some kind of a political compromise. It's a tit-for-tat, quid pro quo. They want us to open up, liberalize the political system, liberalize human rights, liberalize culture. We don't really want to do that. It's not in our interest because it's potentially subversive and could potentially lead to a transformation of the communist systems back to capitalism, of course, which we don't want to do. But at the same time, we need to give them crumbs. We need to let them, allow them to put their foot in culturally. We need to let them, uh, we need to show American movies. Uh, We need to translate foreign English books, German books. So we need to make some concessions uh, in order for us to survive in a very difficult international economic uh, environment. And this need got even more intense In the 1970s, very, very fundamental changes occurred in the in the world economy, uh, transformation towards high tech spheres in the international economy, and the terms of trade, meaning to say that changed detrimentally to the communist bloc. So the commodities that we were selling to the Western world, the prices of those began to plummet, and the stuff that we want to purchase. Is becoming more and more expensive. So it was very, very pressing for these uh, very economically backward, I could say, uh, economically weak countries struggling with domestic financial resources to modernize their economies to embrace the western world to join western economic organizations the international modern monetary fund the world bank to get loans so that they can purchase economy uh, sorry uh, modern technology to modernize their economies and try to keep pace with the world so it was all about try again trying to catch up and even to survive in a very hostile international economic environment so the paradox basically was that even though these countries were still footed very heavily in the Soviet bloc in terms of politics, in terms of security, in terms of ideology, but economic, and they had Soviet-type economic systems, but for economic survival, they already depended on the West. So they were partially in the Soviet bloc, but a little bit already in the West. And it's not a coincidence that when uh, the regime change occurred, at the end of the 1980s, the, most, the, the largest imperative for these countries emerging from the Soviet-type political systems, the one-party political system, the central command, non-market economies, was to be admitted into a larger economic unit, which is which was the European Union. And that was very slow in forthcoming. And it, the fact that the countries of Eastern the EU did not expand into Eastern Europe, actually impeded economic reconstruction after the collapse of communism. <laughs>
0: Uh, So I would like to go back to that episode of Mm -hmm. 1956, and uh, there is a very detailed um, discussion of the revolution, Uh, and the uh, section um, that discusses this part is titled self-liberation. So can we say that this notion of Mm self-liberation, to some extent, uh, provides some theoretical underpinning for your book?
1: Self-liberation is basically a term coined in the United States, Mm -hmm. Uh, meaning that there were two scenarios that somehow, with some means, whether it's economic warfare, psychological warfare, uh, we would be able to achieve the rollback of Soviet power to destabilize communist regimes and foster a, a regime change. Uh, maybe some very vague hope, particularly from the part of the East Europeans, that Western armies would arrive and, 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 and liberate our lands. And, and in the early 1950s, uh, this was not an impossible scenario in the United States. Mm-hmm. So until the Soviet Union developed the means to deliver nuclear warheads on American territory, liberation by military means was not I have to be careful with the wording, so there was no concrete plan to do that. We will not find war plans spelling out how the United States will liberate Central Europe. But a military intervention was not completely um, off-limits. It was not completely uh, an illusion. It was It was not likely that it would happen, but it was a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um Now, since it was very difficult to see how um, liberation could happen without military means, self-liberation was an idea that the populations, the peoples, the societies of Eastern Europe could themselves rid themselves of Soviet domination. And 1956 was a primary, maybe the only example in the Cold War and this seemed likely, because in 1953, the Germans revolted in East Germany. Uh, the American propaganda stations did not encourage the Germans to fight uh, their own government or to fight the, the, the Soviets, uh, for obvious reasons. In '56, they did because they saw it as a possibility as the Hungarians were already fighting the Soviet Union, uh, there was armed struggle. And a very uh, there were many victims of that. Uh, close to 3,000 Hungarian casualties and over 600 Soviet casualties. And if the fact that Khrushchev did announce that he would open negotiations with the Hungarians regarding the country's status and they were pulling out Soviet troops from Budapest briefly at the end of October, seemed to lend credence to the idea that self-liberation could actually happen, that we don't need American involvement, but these peoples can do it for themselves. Of course, we need to encourage them, uh, but they will liberate themselves and at no cost for American foreign policy. So we, we don't need to spend man and material for that to happen, so this is what I mean by mm-hmm. by self liberation.
0: Mm-hmm. So, when detailing policy making, you note and quote: "Foreign policy is formulated not according to some objectively existing reality in the external world, but on the basis of images in the minds of the leaders of one power or another. Eventually, this dependence on perception would work in favor of Kadar's um, Hungary. Hungary came to be." pictured as the most liberal state behind the Iron Curtain, even though, to paraphrase the Nobel Prize-winning uh, author Imre Kertes, uh, it was so horrible we didn't even notice it, end of quote. So, will you comment on this inherent ambiguity that underpins policymaking – This action that um, I just uh, quoted also gesture toward some, uh, not only outside ambiguity, but inside as well. Um, For those living within some certain regime, these ambiguities can probably become blurry and even obliterated uh, through policies and propaganda. Uh, Well, this way, I suppose, some certain collective political and ideological framework is set up and um, implemented.
1: So uh, images are very important Mm -hmm. in the formulation of foreign policy. In fact, they're sometimes more important than reality. I mean, what is reality? Mm Reality is filtered through intelligence and preconceptions, the psyche of leaders, the education of the prejudices of leaders or people who formulate decisions about foreign policy, who make analysis of world politics. Uh, of course, there's, we can we can arrive at at a certain type of objective reality. I mean, we can count how many nuclear warheads or how many tanks the opponent has, and we have good intelligence of their intentions. But there are also these 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 these, these images that don't necessarily coincide with the reality. Um, so so that's yeah. So that's a very good observation. So Kadar did in fact begin to change his image in the Western world. He was seen as a brutal dictator who helped crush uh, the Hungarian Revolution of 56, who was a Soviet puppet. He was a, the butcher of Budapest. He sent his own comrade, not to the gallows. So he was the last leader in Eastern Europe anybody wanted to engage. And all that began to change in the 60s because of his reforms. So by the 1970s, he emerged as a kind of doyen of international politics. Kada supported detente. Uh, he uh, supported disarmament. He was very much afraid of a nuclear war. He was willing even to mediate between Brezhnev and Qatar and later between Reagan and Andropov. Um, his country was becoming more liberal. They were going down the American alley. We want to liberalize their domestic politics. So this is what we want to happen. In fact, some people even believe that Kada's economic experimentations were the way to go to merge a market economy and a central planned economy. And, and what is very interesting is that this image of Hungary as a very liberal, I mean, by communist standards, very liberal state, as an economically experimenting state, was basically written... Uh, by the Hungarian foreign ministry, by the Hungarian state security services, who were feeding this story to Western diplomats, Western leaders, Western diplomats, including Americans. So you have to change your old picture because we're very, very different. You understand? They are the nasty Soviets, and that's why we cannot break out of the Soviet bloc, but in our hearts and minds, we are all Westerners. It wasn't true, of course. It wasn't just the nasty Soviets that were behind them. But they were able to foster this this image, which was very because it was still a very repressive regime. It was uh, the economic uh, reform of 1968 were ultimately very limited. Um, Human rights were observed on paper, but not in not in reality. Uh, Culture was still censored, Um, so uh, reality was much starker, and it was a very corrupt state um corruptive and morally corrupt I should say, morally corrupt state. So people had to make serious moral compromises to make a career in Kadas Hungary. Um, so um, um, uh, uh, the image of Hungary was actually produced, made in Hungary and sold like a commodity to unwitting and naive policy makers and decision makers in the Western world. And that helped Qadar get the money uh, that he needed to support his regime. Uh, In fact, at the end of the 1980s, um, rather than liberation, the Bush administration's goal was genuine political and economic change behind the Iron Curtain, but not the rollback of the Soviet bloc, and not necessarily... The complete transformation of the one party states. So, in fact, for a long time, they insisted that reform communists stay in the governments, even though they lost the election. Because they trusted reform communists more than the opposition in Poland or the opposition in Hungary. They were afraid of recurrent nationalism. So, after all, these were Not the Stalin-type communists. Mm -hmm. These these were rational people we could deal with. So President Bush made some stark, uh, um, uh, striking comments on Kadar, on Jaruzelski and Zhivkov, very positive ones. But he wasn't the only one. Kohl, the German chancellor, Helmut Kohl, made equally um, um, positive comments on on communist dictators, and, and which, which were, in, I mean, it, for the people living behind the Iron Curtain, it would have been, in, it was inconceivable that men like Bush or Kohl had such a positive image of their leaders, who they, by and large, despised.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what does this case of Hungary inform in terms of regimes, their change and their subversion?
1: So, it, it it really highlights the fact that the the wielding of soft power, Joseph Nice, mm-hmm. soft power the attractiveness, the cultural, political appeal of a state can be, on the long term, can have a transformative effect. Mm -hmm. So on the short run, this doesn't work, and soft power doesn't replace hard power, military power, economic power. But on the longer term, it could have a transformative effect. So Mm -hmm. ultimately, now, bridge building and engagement, cultural and economic engagement, it it sounds easy but it was actually very, very difficult to implement Mm -hmm. because of the changing, constantly changing domestic scene behind the Iron Curtain and because of the conflicting security concern of the military and security establishment in the United States. So it's not easy to do, but if it's done right, and I say it's very difficult to do right, economic and cultural, scientific engagement, humanitarian exchanges... Can actually promote regime change there's no doubt, so this is the big lesson uh, that um, this uh, period uh, gives us is that um, uh, if isolation and embargo doesn't work, and if the conditions are right and the conditions have to be right, mm-hmm. then uh, engagement, peaceful engagement, the wielding of soft power can actually work pretty well.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, I know that you're currently working on a new book. And mm-hmm. will you tell us just a little about your current project?
1: So the, uh, um, the working title is Strategies of Survival, mm-hmm. Life Between Hitler and Stalin. And what it is trying to do with micro and macro historical methods is to depart from the experience of the individual to provide a bigger picture of these political, national, socialist and communist regimes and also also to see how people react to very harsh historical conditions, Um, concentration camps, repression, war, genocide. Um, Does humanity survive ultimately? Does solidarity survive? Or are these very harsh regimes capable of completely transforming the individual to their image?
0: Well, um, good luck on this new project. Thank you so
1: much. And thank you for the interview.
0: And thank you so much for joining me today and for this opportunity to discuss your book that contributes to the ongoing efforts to establish some coordinates uh, to deal with the past and, of course, with the present and future. Well, thank you. Today I spoke with Laszlo Borhi. We discussed dealing with dictators, the United States, Hungary and East Europe, Central Europe, 1942-1989. Thank you for listening to New Books in East European Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.